in the years after World War II, with the rise of nuclear competition between so-called great powers, a group of researchers started a, a publication called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. I don't know if this is a bulletin that you subscribe to. I'm guessing probably not. But for 75 years now since its inception, and whether the magazine was in print or, or now online, the cover page has always shown the same thing, a simple clock with an hour hand and a minute hand. And they call it the doomsday clock. It was meant to represent the danger that humanity faces in a nuclear age and the great risk of catastrophe that looms over all the nations of the world. So in the age of nuclear weapons, any clash, any war, any military confrontation carries with it the added possibility of Armageddon. And that's what they meant by midnight on the clock. Over, over the years, they've added other threats to their calculation. So they would say a combination of nuclear, climate, bioterrorism, and, and whatever other threats are out there to mankind's continuing existence on this planet. The original setting of the clock, 1947, was seven minutes till midnight. Now the clock has been adjusted 25 different times, eight times backwards and 17 times forwards. Uh, before January 2020, the lowest points for the doomsday clock were 1953, where it was set to two minutes to midnight after the United States and the Soviet Union tested the first hydrogen bombs. And then again in 2018, when tensions with North Korea, in their words, increased the possibility of nuclear war by accident or miscalculation. Since then, they've moved it even closer. So 100 seconds to midnight, January 23rd, 2020, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then just in January 24th of this year, to 90 seconds to midnight, they cited climate change, biological threats, and the rise of disinformation and disruptive technologies. Now, I grew up in the 1980s, and as a child of the Cold War, I'm probably a little bit too fascinated by this sort of thing. But I don't think the average person spends any time, really, thinking about doomsday and the end of the world. It's the kind of thing that makes for a good movie plot. But it's just too far from our daily lives to have much of an impact, I think. We probably wouldn't disagree that there are many dangers out there. We certainly hope for peace and stability and safety. But, but we're pretty good as human beings as doing a sort of threat triage. Threats have to reach a certain proximity to us and a certain likelihood of happening before we can let them into our minds, so to speak. And that, that's the only real way to live, we feel. That, that work deadline looms. That school test is coming. And the details of life are too numerous to count. 
And when it comes to global threats anyway, those can just seem far away in a country like you and I live in. So the atomic scientists may say that it's 90 seconds to midnight, but we're more focused on the fact that it's 90 minutes to lunch. In our study of the book of Exodus, we've been walking with the Israelites through their suffering and through God's promise of deliverance. And the last few chapters, the the nine plagues that came on Egypt one by one. God has shown himself throughout to be the one who knows the end from the beginning. He's not threatened or surprised by anything that's happened. And we saw last week in chapter 11 that he is going to bring the final plague on Egypt, the death of the firstborn son. And after that, Israel will be thrust out of Egypt. As we come to the climactic plague this morning, both Israel and the reader are in for a surprise. Israel's going to be surprised to find out that they're in danger from God. But the reader finds out that we are in danger too. Future generations share in a looming apocalypse for which we must prepare. The text asks you and I to realize the trouble we're in and to prepare ourselves in the minutes leading up to midnight. How do you prepare for coming judgment? Well, we find out here that we need three things. A suitable substitute, a working memory, and a right fear. And that will form our outline this morning. If you're taking notes and want to write these things down so that you can consider them later, talk about them with others over lunch. How do you prepare for coming judgment? Three things. A suitable substitute, number one. A working memory, number two. And a right fear number three. It's my prayer that God will use this sobering text in our lives this morning to get our attention and to make us ready. So let's consider, first of all, a suitable substitute. We're in Exodus chapter 12. Follow along in your copy of God's Word or the Pew Bible in front of you. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. 
with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We'll stop there. A suitable substitute. God speaks to Moses and Aaron here and tells them how to prepare for the coming of the tenth plague. They are going to pass these instructions on to the Israelites a little later, and they have to keep them uh, in detail. As we thought about last week, this, this plague is very different from the preceding nine. Israel was exempted from those. So when it, when it hailed on Egypt, it didn't hail in Goshen. When it was dark in Egypt, it was not dark in Egypt. The boils didn't come on them. They, they were exempt from the previous nine. But here, this would have been surprising to them, I think, and, 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 and they need to take this detailed action to avoid it. So notice here, we have a series of, of seven instructions. Let's walk through those. Number one, the calculation, verse 3 and 4. Tenth day of the month, they were told to set aside a lamb. But if the family was not large enough to eat a lamb, they would have to enter into conversation with a neighboring household. Can, can you imagine the discussion and the negotiation? How much can you eat? Well, how many people do you have? I don't know. I've got teenagers. They eat a lot. I mean, they would have had to do this for several days to, to set aside the right number of lambs for the right household or household plus. So that's first the calculation. Then second in verse 5, the lamb... A lamb without blemish, a male, a year old. Throughout the Old Testament, sacrifices were to be chosen based on this freedom from blemishes, this spotlessness. So, so not the leftover or the sick or the, the disabled. In part, this was to make sure that the heart of the worshiper was right. But the big idea here is that the unblemished lamb points to the need for a perfect sacrifice, a suitable substitute. So the calculation, the lamb. Uh, number three, the timing. That's in verse six. Fourteenth day, twilight. The whole assembly kills the lamb at the same time. Now, the, the ceremony here takes into account the family, right? So this is household by household, but it takes into account the whole nation, too. We're seeing the, the corporate nature their assembly and their community here. They do it as one large family. Number four, the blood. That's verse seven. The family plus others that are going to eat the lamb together have to be in the house, ready for the meal. Don't think about big houses. Think about a small house crammed in one door. The door is the interface with the outside world. They're, they're going to drain the blood of the lamb into a basin, and they're going to paint the door frame. It would have been strange to them. I come from a family of house painters. I know how to paint a door frame. Painting in blood is very odd. But it would have been abundantly clear to them 
We're huddled in here. The blood is painted over the door, and that's between us and something out there. Number five, in verses eight and nine, we get to the meal, an interesting menu. They have to roast the meat on a spit. I was hiking one time in the foothills of Tibet with some guides, and after three days of eating vegetables, they asked us if we wanted to eat some meat, and the answer was yes. They trotted in a lamb. I couldn't believe it, a white lamb. They killed it in front of us, drove a pole straight through it, and then roasted it in front of us over a fire. That's actually the easiest way to cook. There's no need to draw water. There's no need to boil it. There's no need for bowls and, and pans. The meat was accompanied with unleavened bread. Simple flat bread that doesn't need time to rise. And then bitter herbs, which are the simplest to gather and cook. A strange menu. It's the meal. Number six, in verse 10, we get the cleanup. Basically, no leftovers. Whatever you don't eat, you burn. I think this means to show the once-for-all sufficiency of the sacrifice. And then number seven, the dress code in verse 11. The, the loose robes that they wore were all gathered up. That's the belt. You would do that if you're going to go out walking. Their sandals are on. They even have a walking staff in their hand. And they were to eat it in haste, quickly, wolfing it down. Some of you ate your breakfast this morning quickly because you were late getting to church. That, that's the feel of this. We have to get up and get going in a moment. Hurry up. And then we read those words, it is the Lord's Passover. Because I think it's such an exceedingly strange meal, God explains himself there in verse 12 and 13. Look again. He says he's going to pass through the land of Egypt. He's going to strike the firstborn. That's what God had told Pharaoh he was going to do, by the way, back in chapter 4. He says, if you refuse to let my son Israel go, I will kill your firstborn son. So we're not, that's just coming true. We're not surprised by that with Pharaoh. And we're also not surprised that God would explain that in addition to judging Pharaoh, he's executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Eugene mentioned this as we went through the plagues, as they worshipped the, the sun god and the fertility god and the god of the Nile. So each of the plagues showed the foolishness of this false worship. So here in the tenth plague, all false worship is exposed. He judges the gods not in the sense that they exist, but in that they're not there at all. Their, their impotence is being exposed. I think that in an age of pluralism and tolerance, so-called, we, we must be clear, friends, that there's only one true God. There's only one maker of heaven and earth. He made us. He's the king. And so he's the judge and the only one rightly to be worshipped. He's the only one who can save, and so he's the one with whom you and I have to deal. The gods of the nations are nothing 
Temples can be built to them. Prayers can be offered to them. But they're every bit as impotent as the gods of Egypt to answer. Now, now those two things are not surprising to us, that Pharaoh is being judged, that the gods of Egypt, so-called, are being judged. But, But the next line in verse 13 there demands our attention. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is pictured as coming to strike Egypt, and as he does so, he's heading towards the houses, but then he sees the blood. This is anthropomorphic imagery. God has no trouble. He doesn't need GPS. He he knows which houses, but what he's seeing is that this household has heard my word and believed that judgment is coming, and they've taken the step that I've given to escape the judgment. And I will thus pass over them. But, but if they didn't do that, they would have been destroyed. That would have been so clear in their minds. A firstborn in their house would have died. The clear and enduring message is that they need a substitute. A suitable substitute. The Egyptians deserve judgment, but so do the Israelites. And I think what's being dispelled here is a very natural question that you and I might ask. If God is so powerful, why doesn't he just overlook sin? It's easier for you and I to assume that for God, love comes more easily than justice and wrath. That God's holiness and justice is is negotiable, especially when it comes to saving people. When we come to texts like this one, we've got to adjust our thinking. Without a suitable substitute, God cannot, he will not save anyone. The wages of sin is death. It has always been so. And death there must be, either the sinner or one who can suitably take the sinner's place. We who have the whole Bible can see how the Passover lamb is creating the grammar the category, the mental picture of salvation that the death of the Messiah would ultimately fulfill. You know, in every one of the gospel accounts, the writer emphasizes that the suffering and death of Jesus happened at the Passover. His last supper was a Passover meal. Jesus' innocence is proclaimed from Pilate's own mouth. This man has done nothing wrong to show that he's a lamb without spot or blemish. When the Bible concludes, as Maureen read, the saints are pictured standing and singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. But none of that will be of any use to you if you don't accept a double premise. First, that you even need a substitute. And second, that the substitute that's been provided is Jesus Christ. One of the clearest things that we see in Israel's history is that many people existed as a part of the community and they didn't get it. They didn't believe. I I don't doubt that the same thing is true here, friends. Some of you may be here and find yourself in the camp of the Egyptians or the the free thinkers of, of that day. 
not realizing or, or not believing that judgment is coming. The Bible is clear that every one of us has failed to live according to the law of our Creator. And our Creator is not able or willing to pass over that failure, that sin, without judgment. Nobody will force you to believe that God is coming to judge, but it doesn't change the fact. In that sense, the contrast couldn't be more stark. You either believe and take refuge, the only refuge God has provided, or you're outside waiting. Are you ready to meet your Maker? I would submit there's no more important question than that this morning. For those who do believe, do you believe with wonder, with awe, with gratitude? It's the first thing we need, a suitable substitute. But there's more here. Let's pick up the text in verse 14. Think about our need for a working memory. I'll read down to verse 27. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day... You shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread." Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Quite a few times in the, the book of Exodus, we realize that, that Moses isn't merely writing about what happened at that time. He's also writing to future generations. Uh, he, he would have been writing this down, we think, on the plains of Moab as, as Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. And he's worried that the, the generation that's coming up 
doesn't remember. They, they didn't see many of them, these events, with their own eyes. He gives them three memory aids here. The first one was actually up in, in verse 2 as we began the whole passage. That was the calendar itself. Uh, their entire year is marked from Passover as month one. So they would have had this conf- constant reminder, you know, Eif and Aryef and Sanyef, and if you're doing it in Chinese, you know, it's, it's, it's according to Passover. That's how they would have marked it, month one, two, three. You know, for us, our calendar doesn't work the same way in terms of remembering our redemption. But I was thinking that we, we have a, a weekly calendar that serves as that sort of a reminder, don't we? When Sunday is called the Lord's Day in the New Testament, it's, it's being marked out because that's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And so it, it should function as that weekly sort of reminder in our lives. We We live through a week and we come back to Sunday morning and we remember what Jesus did to redeem us. So the calendar is a a memory aid. He gives to them, he gives to us. Uh, Second, here in verse 14 to 20, we read about this feast of unleavened bread. The, The celebration of Passover is called a memorial day. That kicks it off. Uh, We see in verse 16 that it's a week-long feast, an assembly beginning on the first day, and then there's one again on the seventh day. And to prepare for this, they have to remove all leaven, all yeast from their houses. So, So yeast, which is a staple of a community that would have eaten bread probably every day, uh, would have had this regular reminder every time they eat, I... Unleavened bread is just basically terrible bread. I was looking for a, a way to, to describe this. There's nothing enjoyable. There's not supposed to be anything enjoyable. I, I know that we've come out with all sort of artisan flatbreads and sort of things. That, that's, not what, that's not what you should think of here. This is, you're eating this going, why are we eating bread without yeast? And they're, oh, yes, we're remembering that was the night that God redeemed us. Yes, it, it led to a to time in the wilderness that was difficult, but, but remember the slavery that we were redeemed from. Uh, that's, that's how it would have functioned. It would have reminded them. And we see how serious they were supposed to take it. Did you notice there in verse 15? And then in verse 19, it talks about a, a person who, who won't, Search out the leaven and take it out. We'll be cut off from Israel. What's, what's that about? Well, this person refuses to remember, and so they're cut off from the blessings of being God's people. They show that they don't really care. They show, therefore, that they don't really believe. You know, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up this language of removing the leaven or the yeast. In, in the book of 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, the the context there is a professing believer who is living in unrepentant sin. And and the community hasn't taken any action. So Paul has to write to them and, and urge them to clarify this person's unbelieving state by putting them out of church membership. And then he says this, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this this duty to memorialize and remember the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, maps on to the duty that you and I have to make sure we're living like redeemed people. That we aren't just claiming to be Christians, but we're actually living like it. That we haven't forgotten what should have happened to us or the price of our redemption. Sincerity and truth should mark us. That's why I think later in the same book of 1 Corinthians, when Paul instructs us how to keep the Lord's Supper, that's our memorial meal, right? That's our equivalent of the Passover meal, remembering our redemption. Paul says that as Jesus takes the bread of the Passover meal and the cup of the Passover meal and says, this is my body and this is my blood, and he says, do this in remembrance of me, it's a solemn duty that you and I are undertaking. We need to remember. So let me ask you how seriously you take the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Do you make it a point to gather with God's people as we take it together? You say, well, it's not a very good meal. That's not the point. right? I'm sure you've picked up that little piece of bread and go, well, this is the... The point is to help you remember your redemption. There's a third important way that we preserve the memory of what God has done. We see it here in this command to teach the children. Did you notice that in verse 24 to 27? After commanding them to keep this right forever, Moses has us picture the children asking, What do you mean by this service? And children, if you're here, young people, notice that you should be asking that question. God doesn't have any grandchildren in that sense. Only children, right? I mean, I know that as growing up in a Christian household, there is a season where you simply accept these things as coming from mom and dad, and so I'm following along. But you have to ask this question, what is meant by this service? And the follow-up question is, do I believe it? Now, now, parents and those who instruct children, I I, want to notice from this text that children don't want long-winded answers. Do you notice here the answer is, is, is right to the point. What is meant by this service? It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. I often lean over during the Lord's Supper to my children to speak to them about the meaning of the bread and the meaning of the cup. If and when our children each age of maturity where they can show evidence to the covenant community that they are regenerate believers and are baptized upon their profession of faith into membership in the covenant community, they no longer need to ask us. But until then, mark well your duty as parents to pass on the meaning of redemption to them. You know, in Singapore, I'm bewildered by the number of tuition opportunities for children. I walk through malls and I just count 
it is amazing the number of ways that businesses are willing to take my money to train my children. And I take, I take them, by and large, just an evidence of how much parents here love kids, how much they want to invest in them. But parents, what good is it to raise kids who can pass exams and play Mozart and build robots and win athletic competitions if they don't know the meaning of these things, if they don't know the Lord? And mark well, it says, your children. You cannot outsource this to the church or anyone else. Though the pastors and the children's ministry workers and the youth volunteers find it a joy to join you in testifying about these truths to children. Fathers, to you in particular, let me remind you that you are the spiritual leaders of your home. Your work in the office is not more important than your ministry at home. Let your effort reflect that, that you believe that. So a suitable sacrifice we absolutely need. We're told here we need a working memory so that we can remember these things. But there's a third thing we need to do to prepare, and that's a right fear. Let's pick up the text in verse 28 and read down to verse 32. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The instructions have been given. The people went, did as they were commanded. And this would have taken faith. I'm sure some simply went along with the crowd, but you don't kill a lamb for no reason. And this strange painting of the doorframe with blood requires belief. And they're eating this strange meal with bread that doesn't taste very good and very simple roasted meat, bitter herbs, maybe to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Sadly, they would forget this later. But that night they would have settled down to wait, dressed, watching, listening. What would they have been thinking? The narration of the tenth plague is remarkably brief, minimalistic, to the point. It's only one verse. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And a clarifying statement that from the palace to the dungeon to even out in the field among the livestock, all the firstborn die. As best as I can understand it, it's the firstborn son and family with no sons, perhaps the oldest daughter. Well, let's stop and think about that for a moment. The ages would have varied. Some older, some very young. Infants, toddlers, 
teens. I assume many would have laid down to sleep without a care in the world. What kind of plans did they have for the next day? What kind of hopes, dreams for the near future? How did they die? How did their family members know they had died? Perhaps some knew about what Moses had told Pharaoh. Would they have been checking in just in case? The text records that from Pharaoh to his servants and all the Egyptians, they rose up in the night. And a great cry, which would have begun with the first one to find someone dead. And then it would have become a great rolling wail throughout the land. There was no house where there was not someone dead. We're told here that Moses and Aaron received word. I think summoned is better rendered called out to or, or sent word to. Moses told Pharaoh they would never come face to face again. But whatever, Pharaoh sends word that they are to leave, to get out. Pharaoh's cry for blessing recalls the aging Jacob blessing Pharaoh's hundreds of, Pharaoh hundreds of years earlier when they first came to Egypt. But of course, this desire for blessing from the God of the Hebrews would be a short-lived desire for Pharaoh. What would, be, would have been the effect of that night on God's people? And what's the effect on you and I who, who read these words so many hundreds of years later? We picture them in their homes, hearing the wailing, staring at the blood that's running down the doorpost in the light of the full moon. Probably many things mixed together. Fear, gratitude, relief. I want to submit that a right sort of fear is the emotion that would lead all of those. Because seared into their minds would have been the great danger of being outside. Fear leading to great relief. In the same way that those outside the ark would have watched the, the, the rising water and shuddered to think of the reality of judgment. Here it would have been even more personal. Because God is out there. And you know you can't meet him as you are. Not without a lamb. But hallelujah for the Lamb. When it says that there was not a house without someone dead, that was the Israelites' houses too. Because there was a dead Lamb, a dead body, a corpse, a spotless Lamb. Beloved, let me ask you, do you fear God? You say, well, perfect love drives out fear. And that's true. The sort of fear that has to do with judgment. The judgment that was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, when the Apostle Paul connects the blood of an unblemished lamb to something, he connects it to fear. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 17-19. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I conduct myself with fear because God judges and I have been ransomed. I know that I must stand before my maker one day. The rest of the problems in my life are just details. They're trivial. You don't have any problems compared to this problem. There is a doomsday clock. It doesn't have anything to do with nuclear weapons. It has to do with the fact that it is appointed for every man to die once. And after that comes judgment. It is minutes till midnight. Do I have a refuge? Do you have a refuge? You know, we could mistakenly study this text, read this text as the night when time ran out for Egypt. But it was not. The firstborn was only a fraction of the whole. In many ways, this was an evangelistic judgment because it called out to everyone and said, this is what happens when you meet God without a lamb. I don't know how many minutes it is till midnight for you and I, but we shouldn't waste any time in getting ready. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so clothe yourself in the blood of the Lamb. Having done so, remember what he's done every Lord's Day, every Lord's Supper. Teach the children the meaning of these things. And over all of it is a right fear of the God of judgment and of mercy.